Hi everyone, this is the Hearsay Podcast. My name is Saya. Welcome to episode number 58. My guest today is the lovely Chris Schroeder, who has very recently released an album under the name Jackman called Low Key. I caught up with him on his last night in Brisbane after he'd spent months here during the height of COVID-19. He was lucky to escape Melbourne just in time for everything to just go completely bonkers. Um, And just to clear things up, he was staying with a person in Brisbane called Victoria. So he's not always referring to the state Victoria every time he says the word Victoria. Yes, it's slightly confusing, but I thought I should try to clear that up. Anyway, he recorded this amazing album, Low Key, at Abbey Road, uh, and it's very different to his usual gig, which is in the band The Basics. Uh, It's quite intimate and stripped back, and I highly recommend giving it a listen. As I said, Chris normally plays in the band The Basics, so we talk a little bit about the crazy touring they did. We chat a little bit about his bandmate Wally DeBacca, who some of you would know better as Gautier. Um, So that's who we are referring to when we mention the name Wally. Chris talks about his incredible work studying medicine and working in international aid for the Red Cross in Kenya, as well as his work to help domestic violence victims in Mongolia. So be careful if this kind of information might be triggering for you. Um, Also, we talk about malaria and parasites. Actually, I mentioned a show which I thought was called Parasites in Me, but it's actually called Monsters Inside Me which is way more horrifying. Um, It's a very interesting watch and completely terrifying, uh, but that's the correct name if you want to check it out. As always, there is some swearing, so be careful if listening with children. Chris's strange show story was illustrated by the amazing Scott Edgar from Tripod. This is Scott's third illustration for the podcast. He's a friend of the podcast and a friend to both Chris and I. So thank you, Scott, for another masterpiece. Uh, It's just absolutely perfect. As always, you can see all the illustrations on Instagram at Hearsay Podcast or on the Hearsay Facebook page. Like and subscribe on iTunes if you would like to. Uh, It really helps people be able to find the podcast and it only takes a second. So if you'd like to do it, it would mean a lot to me. Thank you everyone so much again for listening. Here it is, episode number 58, Chris Schroeder. Hey, Chris, thank you so much for coming to my synth cave. Yes, well, uh, thank you. I was going to say welcome, Saya, but <laughs> welcome. you're welcome is what I'm yeah, interested in. Yeah, I'm welcoming you. Thank you. And you're also welcome in your own home. <laughs> I love it. I've never felt more welcome in my life. Well, this is, uh, this is how I like uh, to, the atmosphere we like to create here. Great. In your house. We're, we're off to a good start. Very how, good. how are you doing? How are your feelings? Oh gosh, that's you. You said you wouldn't ask me anything that you know I didn't want to talk about. I mean, I'm actually quite emotionally distressed. I'm leaving Brisbane tomorrow. No. Um, and heading back to Victoria. You've chosen to spend your last night with me. That's nice. Yeah, it's you know, I mean that that was a good decision, I think. <laughs> um, but yeah, mixed feelings. It's been a um, it's been a nice time. Did you come sort of? In the midst of COVID craziness and then you stayed because of it or? So, I've been studying medicine for the last couple of years and I was living on campus. So, when they closed the university, uh, they also closed the accommodation and Victoria was um, kind enough to say, well, you can come and stay up here um, because the other option was staying with my mum um, in cold Victoria. Mm. Uh cold blustery rainy victoria and she doesn't have great insulation or heating um and it's quite sort of out of the city as Mm -hmm. well so i really it would have been a very miserable time and uh, i was very grateful for you know the what we've been able to enjoy up here yes and going into melbourne winter i imagine that that exactly yeah Yeah. um (laughs) And I made the, the clever decision of changing my address um, before I left Victoria. So, I changed it to a Queensland address to say, 
And one of the stipulations in crossing the border was, you know, if you were living in an accommodation on a campus or something and you got booted off, that's one reason you can cross over because you're needing to move into this other place. So it kind of all worked out very well. At one point I tried to, um, I thought, well, I'm not going to bother with trying to cross over at the Gold Coast sort of area. I'll go inland, inland. And uh, Google Maps took me off on this rampant road down a dirt track. I got to an actual like roadblock where it said, if you try and cross here, it's going to cost you $25,000. And it had they just built rocks. And I mean, it, there was no way I was going to cross it anyway, but I'd gone 150 kilometers in the wrong direction, I had to go all the way back, rolled up to the border at 3 a.m. And these two police and a couple of army officers are like, what are you doing here? We haven't seen anyone for, you know, 36 hours. And I'm like, I don't know. I'm just here. I'd brought the wrong form. The form had already expired. They were like, don't worry, we'll sort you out. And I had a quick kip for four hours. And then, because I basically did the drive in, in one stretch, like 20 hour stretch. So, yeah, it was Gosh. it was quite an adventure coming up. And then to be locked in the, the house for 14 days straight. How amazing, though, to be able to release a record during this crazy time. Um, how, what are your feelings about it? Do you feel sad to not be able to tour properly and to do, to give it sort of the, the normal touring schedule? No, not really at all. Um, I'd like to be able to do some shows at some point, but with this record, it was very different to say the stuff that I've done with the basics in so far as, you know, it was, it was made in the studio. Um, and the guys that played on it who live in the UK, I think were so integral to the sound and the vibe that um, I wouldn't probably I wouldn't feel comfortable doing it without them. So, and uh, I'm not in a rush to make that happen. It'll happen, you know, when it happens. Um, but I've gone the Harry Nelson path with with this one, and just I'm not going to perform anymore. That was it. That was my performing life. I really loved the record, and it was just a really beautiful, like baritone, hard on your sleeve kind of beautiful experience. And I don't know what I was expecting. I think I was expecting more basics kind of stuff. I knew that people would expect that um, yeah. going into it, and I knew that's going to be the greatest hurdle um, to just get people to listen to it because they'll be like, "Ah, oh, yeah, Chris from the Basics. You know, we know what." his shtick is it's you know it's all right we'll give it a listen eventually you know but um and so i'm just waiting for the you know slowly it's trickling in people are like oh actually no this isn't what i was expecting completely different in a beautiful way you know the basics are one thing and that they're beautiful for for their own reasons but i think this is this feels really heartfelt and intimate you know it's been getting some excellent reviews like uh, and stuff that's like surprised me actually because you know I put my heart and soul into those basics records and we we worked so hard on the arrangements and on getting it right and this kind of it wasn't slapped together I mean it was but it certainly wasn't like I kind of write, wrote the songs in about three weeks I wrote the last one sort of four days before this meeting you know these three guys who would play on it we put it together in an afternoon recorded it that weekend and so it doesn't it doesn't kind of feel real like to be getting you know to be getting such nice things said about it i'm like it was so effortless like uh it just kind of i don't know it feels in some ways it feels undeserving but yeah i mean i think that's quite a common thing amongst musicians i talk a lot to musicians about imposter syndrome and i think even even if you're someone who has sold five million records everyone has that slight insecurity where you're like why am i getting this praise or you know i i don't deserve i'm not a real musician or and for so long you kind of go i deserve you know yes. i deserve recognition and then when you get it you're like oh i Sorry, this isn't I, this what is i mistake. thought it was yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> i didn't mean it to be like this i just wanted to people to kind of go yeah okay chris can write a song that's yeah. good you totally can, and it's it's a lovely thing. And you recorded it at Abbey Road. I That's did. That's yep. pretty fucking cool. Uh-huh. And so you said you met these musicians just before. How how did that come about? Uh, so Sam O'Kell, who produced the album, and uh, he did he produce the Basics record as well. He did. Uh, he mixed the Age of Entitlement. Um, so that was co-produced with Peter Cobbin. 
who was there for all the recording, but then he had to go and work with Ridley Scott. Thanks, Ridley, for stealing him away from me. Prick. I know, right? I was actually a little bit incensed. I'm like, I'm not going to go and see Prometheus now. Or Co- Covenant, whatever, whichever it was. It was. Um, I did go and see it and I still loved it. Um, and so, Sam, who was, you know, he kind of called his prod- prodigy, took over in the mixing sessions. And so, I'd worked with him before and he did uh, Mixed in the Root as well. And um, he's done some of the song room stuff that um, we've done. And so, yeah, we I just contacted Sam and I said, uh, I'd love to just come and mess around in the studio and play with the tape machines and just see you know, um, just with the guitar and, you know, maybe I'll just write a couple of songs and we can just mess around for a weekend. And then uh, I decided, um, well, you know how much time you waste when you make a mistake. And, you know, I'm not a great guitarist. You know, I'm not really – I just play to to write the songs and whatever. Um, And so, you know, the first take is fine, but then second take you just get worse and worse and you waste so much time, right? (laughs) Because uh, you think the other way around. Oh yeah, yeah. When you do you're so much thinking about. Oh, I want that bit, but then I also want the, the other bit. I love that thing on Beatles Anthology Three when Paul at the end of Maxwell Silver Hammer and he goes, "Yeah, it was good, but I love to have all the good bits and the other bits." And I always think of that, like you're always trying to capture both the energy and all the like little, you know, trills and whatever. Trills is obviously the wrong way, but um, <laughs> it's all right. I grew up playing violin as well. Um, and then, uh, I, so I decided, well, I'll get a guitarist, just someone that can play and I can just concentrate on giving a Paul. performance yeah. and whatever. Mm-hmm. And so Adam Chetwood came on board and then after a few weeks, or I don't know, it might not have been, it might have been a week. I thought it'd be cool to have someone just playing like a Ray Cooper, you know, just playing some percussion. And so John Bleece came on board. Um, again, Sam, they'd done sessions at Abbey Road. I mean, that's the great thing about that studio. You're going to get, usually get good people in. Yeah. And John had just been playing, I think, on Paolo Nutini's stuff or Gold Frap or something great. like that. Um, and then finally I was like, oh, I want, I want like a Nicky Hopkins, you know. Um, I feel like this album's going to be like a bit of a stripped back kind of vibe and, you know, I need someone to kind of maybe do that, you know, the, the fill it, fill it out a little bit. And um, so the last piece of the puzzle was Patty Milner, uh, who used to play with, uh, who was Jack Bruce's uh, keyboardist before Jack uh, passed away. And now he plays with Tom Jones. Um, And he just, I mean, he was the glue that really pulled everything together, particularly on that afternoon when we just sat down and I just gave them all lead sheets and said, here's the songs. I mean, they were all incredible, but Patty really read the vibe as far as the ebbs and flows and, you know, the piano being both melodic and percussive. Really amazing. Yeah, I I noticed that. All the swells and all the stuff like, you know, and just immaculate playing. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I guess when you're in and then when you're at the studio and the tapes, you know, we did everything straight to tape, wow. including the singing. Like wow. I'm just I'm just singing in the room with them. We had a bit of separation for the guitar, but otherwise it was all out in the open in Studio 3. It We just, you know, everyone just rose to the occasion and it was just a really neat. We didn't do more than maybe two takes. Most wow. of the things are take one, so... Because then you got worse when your thinky brain took over. Well, just didn't need to do anymore, but yeah, <laughs> probably, joking. yeah. Um, so, so there were no overdubs, like no, none of those core parts were overdubbed. All the core core parts are the original Incredible. part. So uh, it obviously, does not sound like that. It sounds really amazing and well. On. All credit to Sam. He really, you know, he'd been working with a he did, did all the Beatles remixes. So I think he's learnt a lot. Yeah. Um, just from, you know, probably listening to those to death. I can't, poor guy, I'll probably never be able to listen to a Beatles record again. <laughs> um, but, you know, he's also worked with PJ Harvey and, um, you know, any number of people. But um, Graham Coxon, my, my yeah, favorite. Yeah, yeah. Um, That's such a great thing to have done. I've never recorded an album like that. I've always been, like, very heavy on the overdubs and on the layered stuff. It was something that I always... I mean, that's how we recorded the first Basics record, for instance. We've always tried to do as much of it live as possible, even when we did Age of Entitlement, which we did at um, Abbey Road as well. Um, we still played live. We never sang live. So, singing live was taking it the next step. And yeah. so many little moments that you just can't contrive because, 
you know, you do a little stuff up and it's never the same the second time around, you know. So, again, it just all came down to getting that moment and, mm. you know, it just the acoustic of the room and, you know, it makes you want to sing a certain way and give a certain performance. So, yeah, it was as real as it could possibly be. That's so cool. I mean, I had a couple of female vocalists, Vashti and Nada. Yeah, who, who, look, um, tell me about them. So Vash uh, is friends with with Sam as well, friends with his wife. Um, And um, I sort of wanted a bit of a Tales of New York kind of vibe. So he suggested her and she came in and she was great. Although Mm. we kind of then kind of reworked where she'd sing in what parts and stuff. And then... um, with Ship of Theseus, it was actually meant to be just me singing the whole way through, but something just didn't feel right. Like it kind of just dragged in the wrong spots and I uh, I still loved the song and then I was kind of like, maybe I could turn it into a duet. So after I'd recorded the whole thing, I actually got on Fiverr of all things. Um, what is that? It's an outsourcing app where all oh. sorts of creative, but you can get them to do graphic design. Oh, and- like, like um, what's it called here? Airtasker. Uh, but for yes, creative people. but for creatives, yeah. yeah. So there's people that you know that will write songs for you on wow. there. So I, I just put out, I just sort of put out there that I was looking for a, a female vocalist, and I had you know maybe twenty or thirty people respond. They all, and I said, here's the song. Can you send me back your interpretation of it? And this uh, Nada, I've never, I've never met her. I've never actually spoke, spoken to her, other than over email or whatever. She's from Morocco, you know, young French girl and um, Moroccan French, I should say. And I just liked that there was something about it. Um, you know, I don't think she's really done any recording before, um, but it, you know, I just loved the sound of her voice, yeah. and I went, "That's the one." And so we, um, we put it all together and. Um, that came together fairly recently, actually. Wow. So, and did she just record at home and send yeah, you a vocal? Yeah, yeah. I hope that she goes on to do more stuff because yeah. I think she's got a lot of potential. Beautiful voice. Um, I don't know yeah. what the music scene's like in Morocco. Yeah, who knows? I imagine it's quite insane. Probably really cool. Yeah. There's so many places that you never think about as being cool music-wise. Yeah. And when you go there, you're like, fuck. It's, um, I mean, it's such a crossroads of cultures, yes. like Tangier and all that. Yeah. So. What were the other people like? Were, were some of them really shit that you got to sing that? No, <laughs> they were just sort of um, going the wrong, like in, their interpretation was sort of yeah. not what I wasn't, well, yeah, not yeah, what yeah. I was looking for. I can't remember anyone that was super shit. It was yeah. just like <laughs> people that were obviously a little bit average, but, yeah, sure. you know. It's just, it's a certain, I mean, the funny ones were like um, a couple of like, you know, R&B singers that tried for it and just went for the completely, it was <laughs> such a wrong vibe for yeah. it, you know, like a Beyonce Over kind singing. of style. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was amazing to hear the lyrics like that. Um, yeah. But yeah, that was never going to work against my yeah. kind of casual kind of <laughs> vibe. Yeah. I always find it funny because I've been on a few Grant panels and, you know, you, you never, it's a shitty thing having to judge someone else's art and someone else's output. But when you do it, it's so easy to then go like, oh, that's really shit. <laughs> and I always feel really guilty if I think something's shit because who am I to decide if something's shit or not? Yeah. You know? The only time I've, I, I was on a grant panel earlier this year or mid last year for Vic Grants. That was fine. One time though, I was asked to um, like uh, judge a, um, a songwriting competition and I've still got a lot of the tracks on my <laughs> laptop. You know, I just downloaded them in bulk and <laughs> my God, it was, it was, it made you, you know, because sometimes as a, an artist, well, often as an artist, you kind of doubt your own ability. But yeah. listening to this, I was like, no, actually, I'm all I, right. I'm all right. <laughs> <laughs> Christ, if this is if this is what I'm competing with, you know, I, I, I think I need to think a little bit better of myself. Um, well, let's go to some stuff. That, so you said you've been studying medicine. Have you been studying yeah. medicine in Queensland or are you sort of on, oh, we've been on doing hold it, for a bit? Yeah, by, by distance. So it's been a new thing for us and for them. Mm. Um, so it's, it's fine. Next year I'll be in the hospital, which is where it all really kicks off. So yeah. 
this year and last year has, has been mostly sort of uh, the theory and, um, you know, learning the anatomy and stuff. That that kind of stuff has been a little bit hard, but I'd done anatomy earlier in, a, mm. in my undergrad. So, um, I've, yeah, that was fine. Um, so, I'm looking forward to that, getting out to stall. Is your wish to be a specialist or are you sort of... Look, my interest is in infectious diseases. Oh, wow. Because I did three years with the Red Cross in Kenya about uh, 10 years ago, like 2011 to 2014. And that... You know, I got malaria three times when I was Holy there. And moly. so, I, I was like, I kind of got a bit of an insight into, you know, looking into epidemiology and, Whoa. you know, treatment and diagnosis and all what that sort of stuff. What was getting malaria like? First time it was like, it comes on so gradually, you don't really know what's going on. And I guess we're so used to having the flu and stuff. And so, you kind of like... Well, am I am I sick or what is this? And so I just went to the clinic and, uh, you know, they're like, yeah, had the tests and came back. You know, one of the good things about doing it over there is that because it's so common, you can mm. get a result in like five minutes. Oh wow! And just in that five minutes, it all really hit me. And they're like, yeah, you're positive. You should go to the hospital. Shit. And uh, so I rang our medical provider that Red Cross sort of has for us in country and they sent me an ambulance. Like, yeah. So I lived about 100 k's from Nairobi. And, Damn. Um, and so I just remember sort of passing in and out of consciousness as the, like this ambulance is hurtling down <gasps> Mombasa Road. Like they're obviously you know, uh, going over, you know, cross, cross country at some points. Cause it's like, oh am I, am I going to die on the road or am I going to make it to the hospital? But I did. And then, um, yeah, it was several days. I was there for maybe 10 days and then I got a second time. It was slightly less intense. And then by the third time I was actually, I just kind of got a feeling that, you know, maybe I should have the test. Um, and I was, cause I was flying to London to record, age of entitlement and you know i just took the um the animal aerials and i was fine so you you do build up in a in a, an immunity Whoa. um but yeah that first time your your western body ain't gotten all used to it so uh <laughs> is it, it just was like rough. it's a fever dream isn't it oh look your it's like your joints are aching your um you know you're kind of um, the whole time and you're kind of like just oh shivering God. and it it just hits you like a ton of bricks um i, I had it there was one of the american peace corps um volunteers that died of <gasps> went to her brain and, and killed her while shit. i was there so that oh, was no. you know it's it's serious very serious <laughs> uh you know hundreds of thousands of people die of it every year yeah. so it's no joke um so yeah i was i consider myself quite lucky that i um it was quite an experience. So I, that was that was my one of the things that kind of led me in that direction. But you know, emergency medicine, or but somehow going back um, and working, you know, Red Cross, WHO, mm. UN, sort of that sort of thing, because um, it's a very competitive sector as well, and even more so, the money's really everyone's turned back inward in mm. the last ten years. Everyone's retreated back to their borders. There's not a lot of uh, you know, global cooperation like there used to be. So, yeah. Wow. And what made you go over to Kenya in the first place? What made you start, you know, working for the Red Cross? And mm. being, was it that you wanted a backup plan for music? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, definitely I kept a sort of half career going most of the time. Like, you know, I went and worked for Fairfax and then Australia Post. And I most of the time had a had a full-time job ish that i managed to work around um and then i'd always sort of wanted to look in that direction and then i went through this awful breakup and um ended up kind of going i need to get out of here yeah and i just i actually just wanted to get out of my job i didn't want to go overseas necessarily but i applied for a ton of jobs and this kind of just sailed through as as if it was serendipitous and i just kind of went with it and all of a sudden you know, I was there and like it just kind of happened. And then that sort of changed your life into thinking differently about, you know, career and sense of purpose. I guess I'd wanted to get into medicine before that, but um, I didn't know how to do it. And like, as it turned out, there's a thing called a GPA, which I was a real (laughs) rat bag in my original (laughs) undergrad and 
barely passed. Mm. So there was no way they were going to let me through. So I was looking down the barrel of another three-year undergraduate degree. I'm like, there's no way I'm going to do that because like – I mean, that's a massive punt to do another three years and maybe get the grades to maybe get in. Um, And as it turns out, like just that three years in Africa, I just kept meeting people that kind of, uh, you know, kept pulling me in that direction. So when I got back, it took me a little while to still, you know, launch into it. But I did that three-year undergrad, science undergrad, and I, by a miracle, I got the marks to get in and I managed to do the GAMSAT and get good enough and got the offer and, yeah, so I'm still doing it. So, yeah, it's kind of, you know, a nice thing (laughs) or else I would have wasted a long time. (laughs) Yeah. Which, yeah. And you still get to do music, which is incredible. So you get, you sort of get the best of both worlds. Yeah. Before you went to Africa, were you just sort of touring nonstop with the basics? Yeah, for about, yeah, seven years of... yeah. I can relate. I mean, to that we did feeling. thousands of shows mm. in places that most most Australians wouldn't even know existed, yeah. and overseas. And um, yeah, I'm sure Gurge did like a ton. Oh of man, I remember even you know not that like maybe like eight years ago. I remember seeing tour dates, and we were doing. I think we did six or eight weeks just of Australia. Yeah, I was yeah. like, how. How many places are there to play? And where the fuck is Bernie? <laughs> you know, yeah, like yeah. all these people, all these places where you're just like, I've never heard of Bernie. Yeah. Where is that? Tasmania. And we just, we used to, <laughs> like back in the day, we never even had a booking. I used to yeah. book all these gigs off, across the top end myself. Oh, wow. So we'd go and pa- play in um, Kananara and then we'd go and yeah. play in Derby and then we'd go and play in Broome and then Port Hedland and Onslow, all these places. You know, you don't know what you're in for. You're just three, you know, white kids from yeah. Melbourne going to what might as well be the, the other side of the world. Absolutely. Um, it's so, you know, different in yeah. so many ways. And carrying our own gear, you know, setting up our own PA for four or five hundred bucks. Yeah. You know, um, so, Brutal. yeah, it was, it was pretty cool. But some of it's so rewarding. I found doing, doing those regional shows with Regurgitator, I found you know, like the last person to have played there was like six months ago. And so yep. they're so appreciative and everybody comes out in the town to watch. And Except on those times, and you've probably got that too, when you go, oh, mate, you should have come and played here oh, last yeah. night. <laughs> it was it was Dad's 21st at the whole town here. Tonight, no, nah, there's not going to be anyone here tonight. Yeah. And you're like, oh, great, thanks. <laughs> like as if I had a choice. Yeah, like, that's know. right. Um <laughs> Good yeah, times. Yeah, I, de- I definitely don't miss not being home. Yeah, it's pretty taxing. Um, tough on relationships, tough on your body, your mental health. Yeah, I always think of that quote that John Lennon says at the end of um, the Beatles anthology where he's like, I feel sorry for the people that um, never got to see us play. You know, yes, they gave their screams and whatever, but the Beatles gave their nervous systems. And I think any touring musician knows what it's like just to be at your wits' end. Uh, I mean, their their experience would have been to the nth degree, but you still get something of an insight into just like dragging yourself around and people think you're having the greatest time. And it's like, this is hard work. Yeah, like, man. And we're getting paid. It's like a dollar an hour. <laughs> And I've had three hours sleep and had to drive yeah. from Cairns to Darwin. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Done it. Do you get stage fright? I grew up as a violinist. So, yeah, I'm used to getting up and, you know, um, playing very badly in front of a room full of old people who are half asleep. <laughs> um, so, I think, you know, if anything, it's probably those many years of playing that, there was there was nothing to be afraid of. Like mm. I've done my I've done the worst I could possibly do. It's not going to get as bad as that. Where I'm, <laughs> you know how it is. And actually, in, in school, I gave the absolute worst performance I'll ever give. When for house music, which for those of you that don't know, you know, you got your six. We had six houses. Um, we'd rehearse and it was great. We had a great band. Blah blah blah. We're doing a couple of Beatles songs and then we were doing um, Hootie and the Blowfishes, Let Her Cry. And I, this was really like a big <laughs> moment for me. Uh, except then I just sang it completely in the wrong key the whole way through. And 
everyone's kind of just looking at me and I didn't know at the time that I was singing it in the wrong key. I think I was singing no. in like a third below or something. It was just, I started on the wrong note and everything from then on was the wrong note. Shit. So, that was the most embarrassing performance That's of my life great. to find out that, no, you actually sang it in the wrong key. Oh, and I, I didn't that. even know. <laughs> Well, can we go back to school and, and little Chris and can you tell me a little bit about, did, did you have a time in your life when you thought this is what I want to do with my life? I want to write music. I want to play music. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I started playing violin because like we didn't have music at my primary school, but we had this visiting old lady, uh, Mrs. McKenzie, who... Uh, my mum, for some reason, decided my brother would get lessons. So, he'd come back with violin and I'd grab it and sneak it off into a corner. And like, and after a few weeks of doing that, she was like, oh, do you want to have lessons? And I was like, yeah, let's do it. And then I guess that just, I did some summer school things. You know, both my parents worked a lot at that time. Um, so, they used to put us in the summer school to keep us busy. And I got a music scholarship to go to high school. Um, which covered most of my fees for this very, you know, you know, expensive school. Amazing. Um, with violin. Yeah, with violin. I was, you know, I was their string section because this was <laughs> the early 90s when playing violin was very, very uncool. I did it as well. Yeah, I yeah. looked up your Wikipedia page. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, Is it on there? Yeah. That How do they Violin know? and piano. And that you're from, you were born in Kessel it. and that you were, grew up in Stuttgart and came to Australia in 1988. Wow, I did read it. Um, <laughs> yes, I also looked up Kessel because I was like, oh, this is interesting. Oh, the Grimm brothers lived there. That's a cool story. <laughs> uh, so, maybe you'd like to tell me a bit about that. Um, you can interview me another time. Yeah, it happens very quickly, <laughs> subtly. Uh, but yeah, I went to school and so playing violin, I needed to do that anyway mm. um, in order to keep my scholarship. Um, but yeah, I just kind of eventually kind of fell in. I was, you know, super nerdy, but halfway through year 10, something changed and being nerdy was somehow became cool. And I fell in with these three or four other guys that were you know, the other guys thought these guys were the coolest. And for some reason, they thought I was cool. So, just by default, I then became cool. Great. So, my last two years of school were great. Like, I was, you know, we were in the cooler than cool group. Great. Um, and so... What kind of music were this, were this cool group listening to? Oh, like Nick to? Cave and, uh, you know, all the, all the good... Yeah. All the good mid ninety stuff. Sure. Jeff Buckley, that was when yeah. I got into... And you know, that was when Triple J was really, you know, killing it. Um uh, rest in peace. Um, <laughs> but um, they, so they introduced me to, you know, Fiona Apple and, um, you know, just a bunch of great stuff. And all of a sudden I was just like, yeah, I can do this. I can be a rock and roll star. Like I, I, I thought actually I, I might do, um, I actually auditioned for VCA um, to do both vo voice and, and violin. So, mm -hmm. I hadn't, it wasn't, definitely wasn't like, I'm going to be a rock and roll star by any means. But I didn't get in. But at that time, I, I became a sort of a bit of a dropout from school. I'd gone from fairly conscientious to like, I, I didn't care anymore. Um, I just wanted to do something artistic. and But the school wasn't going to have it and my parents weren't going to have it. And they sort of arranged with Monash to offer me this Bachelor of Communication, which is now a journalism degree. So, and it sort of sounded okay to me. So, I did that. And actually, just in amongst that, I um, and you know, I went to TAFE as well. There was this one-off thing where they did a double award where you did both at the same time. I just met some other people that we started playing music again. And then I gradually going back in. And then I met Wally. And yeah, well, the rest is history. So, it wasn't really like... It was kind of a general idea. It wasn't, it's not like, I feel like people these days, they kind of go, I'm going to be a musician and this is what I'm going to do. And I'm going to go to these conferences and I'm going to learn how to be a musician and how to get a sync and how to do all this sort of stuff. And I mean, that's how it's kind of promoted these days, isn't mm. it? A career path, but it wasn't a career path then. I wanted to do screenwriting, actually. That was yeah, my right. first thing. I, I wrote all these scripts and would send them to Screen Australia and get some very nice feedback but oh it's not quite what we're looking sure. for and whatever but i knew i wanted to do something creative yeah and so what then what was the transition between violin and bass or guitar 
So I think I, I taught myself guitar in year 11 or year 10 or 11 just to write songs because um, I had a keyboard, like a little Casio number, um, but writing songs on a keyboard, it's, I don't know, like I didn't really know how to play keyboard mm. either and you can't write songs on a violin. Um, so it was really just a functional transition, which then, I mean, then you can get up and play, can't you? So it wasn't, it wasn't, um, I mean, even then for the last two years, I don't think I played guitar when I performed. I think I just sang and had a friend of mine, John, he would usually play guitar. So it wasn't until well after I actually, um, was playing guitar at all in Mm. public. That's so interesting that you sort of realised that violin wasn't going to sort of get you to the places that you wanted to be in terms of being able to write songs. Yeah, I don't even remember that, to be honest. I think uh, I was just in love with this girl at school and I wanted to write some songs. Yeah, and that's a common story. <laughs> it's a common theme of my life, really. Yeah, common for you and also common just in general. Like yeah. I needed to learn guitar to get girls. <laughs> Well, no. So that's what I, that's what I was trying to differentiate. It wasn't to get girls. It was to write a song that would express how I felt. Yep, yep. So yep. the guitar sort of thing was just kind of like, well, it was just a functional thing because it was just too hard. Like the first song I ever wrote, um, it changes chords every bar. You know, oh, there's yeah. so much. You yeah, know, it's yeah. like a jazz number, <laughs> and I'm like, this is. I can't keep doing this. Do you remember the song? Yeah. What was some of the lyrics? Sitting alone, far from the light, shades of grey, act as my sight. That sounds actually like quite poetic. I actually think the song holds up as uh, not some of my best work, but like for the stuff that I wrote around that period, it's definitely the best of it. Yeah, of okay. it. So there's a recording <laughs> of it exists somewhere. On Leftovers, the second track where it's just a tape recording of my, you know, sort of first band in uni of us playing it. So that's actually the song. Ah. Um, it's like a, a minute snippet of it because it goes, it's like goes for six minutes. It's quite, a, <laughs> quite an epic work. Did so. she go out with you? No. Damn it. She went out with a drummer instead. Well, let's talk about your drummer just for a second because he's kind of our mutual friend. We were saying that um, Wally um, has the same birthday as me and so we Mm -hmm. have a nice little birthday email exchange every year. Mm -hmm. I'll have to confirm that with him. He's like, no, I don't know any Sayer. I don't know any Sayer. Fuck. (laughs) It's just his manager writing back to you. You know what? I um I went down. He got a very rare keyboard called a Yamaha EX42. Oh yes, um, he's shown and it so off. So I to drove me. down to visit the keyboard, and and you know also say hi to Wall. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, that was we had like such a fun day doing that, and um, oh, he would have loved that. That's his like. Yeah, I think he just got it when when I saw it, and so yeah. it was still like I'm sure it's still really exciting, but. During this time, we were like, whoa, we just spent like a whole day playing it. It's all just sitting under sheets and stuff oh, now. It's a bit so like, sad. well, yeah, I mean, he'll come back to it eventually. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. Think. <laughs> but so what I was going to say is I saw him that day and the next day was the day he went to America and won all the Grammys. In oh, the wow. Yes. So that was the last time I saw him. I haven't seen him in a really long time. And I imagine that um, it's just such a weird thing when a friend absolutely like explodes. I actually had no idea. I was living in Kenya at the time and I was completely oblivious to everything that was going on because the internet then, yes, it was present, but it wasn't sort of, it wasn't like it is now. It wasn't um, so saturated. The first suggestion that I got was one year I went to Berlin for, oh, my grandmother died. So I went to, she died on Boxing Day. Um, and so I went to the funeral and I stayed over New Year's and I saw posters up for him in Berlin and I was like, oh, that's pretty. And then when I got back at my local, um, uh, you know, crappy little karaoke place down the road, it had it in the song list. And I was like, whoa, okay, <laughs> this is super weird. Yeah. What Kenyan is going to know this? And then I heard it on uh like the white man's xfm or whatever mm. it is in in kenya on the radio and i was like i i was kind of like well okay this is definitely and then i heard about his grammy win but 
because I'd lived in that kind of environment, it didn't feel... I mean, I think I would have felt very differently if I'd been living in Australia then. Yeah. Um, and people constantly kind of going, how do you feel? How do you feel about yeah, it? Yeah, I'm so sorry to ask you that. No, no, no. It's completely great. Like, you know, I don't understand why people would think that I think anything other than admiration of course, or respect of for someone that I consider... You know, like Your we're brother. so close. Yeah. yeah, I know. I I think I I'm just coming at it from the point of view of like, it's so weird when a friend blows up. Like it's for me. I've had a couple of friends that have you know done really amazing big things, and then it's weird that that sort of your view of them doesn't change, but the world view of them changes. Yeah. Um. Thankfully, I was sheltered from that for much yeah. of it. I think it only came sort of quite a bit later on just how huge mm. um, I think it was. So, yeah, um, yeah, I, I don't know how I would have felt if I was like surrounded in the midst of it kind mm. of while it was going on. But as it was, I was I was blissfully unaware. That's great. And I got a mention. He said, thanks, Chris oh, and Tim. I got, got edited out on the telecast. Pricks. But, I know. Well, I think it's cool. Like, I think it's cool being a um, such a a really tight unit of friends, um, and then everyone. And look at him has- now; he's just washed up. <laughs> as as people keep saying on the internet, like the dude dropped one song and then dipped. Like <laughs> fucking kids, like you fucking morons, like. Yeah, I get cross about that too. It's like, do your research. Like, yeah. he clearly dropped more than one song, even if you only want to, you know. Also, it makes me so fuck annoyed. off. It's none yeah. of your business. Yeah. He can do what he wants. So. Um, no, I think it's really cool that you are like such a tight group and you all get to do your own things. Um, and so this is your first thing, this solo album since being part of that group is that right or have you sort of I put released out a, an ep under my own oh, name yep, yep. very briefly i did i actually did the album launch the night before i went to kenya um and uh, i just kind of slapped it together and and left yeah um i'd like to go back to those songs and revisit it i think they could have turned out better than what they did did you tour that EP? i just did one show at the the northcote social club and um uh yeah uh, just as a launch and then next day flew to kenya so um that's the only thing that i've done Mm. uh aside from the basics for 18 years wow so this is a really great amazing thing you've achieved you've got to do your own thing it's so exciting yeah i get to um you know be one of those like critically acclaimed but a financial disaster and i'm gonna wear that badge with pride man i don't think anyone's making money from music right now i don't think that it's a thing that you know unless unless you're like beyonce you're not gonna be making money and they're probably making more money from the merch and the yeah. perfume and the have you thought about your lingerie. merch <laughs> i've got i'm been developing the merch line yeah but um yeah it's still the, the margins really aren't killing it some some lingerie jackman uh, lingerie Jackman Jocks. That could work. Me and Hugh can go in on, you know, on a, he can put in half and I'll put in half. By the way, Jackman is a bit inconvenient to Google. Is it? Yeah. Because, I mean, I know it has the two ends. Yeah. However, Google just wants it to be Hugh. Well, I mean, apparently we're related. He's like my third cousin or really? something like that. Yeah. Because my mum's surname is Jackman. So that's why I called it that when I was. Um, you know, writing this album and traveling through Eastern Europe and going to places, say, where my um, my mother and father both have roots. And it was kind of like a self-discovery kind of thing because I really didn't know much about my ancestry at all. Like my dad's surname is Schroeder, but it, and so it's always been, oh, you must be German or something. But he was adopted by a guy called Schroeder because oh. he was born during the war. Um, and you know, his mother is Polish and like, he's got a, you know, this kind of whole Polish side, you know, and you know, we all had our DNA done. It's all heavily Eastern European, um, with a bit of Nigerian for me, which is true. Really? Um, Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if that was a mistake, but (laughs) yeah, it's, it's in the, it's in the vibes. I've got one black hair there. I noticed. I do actually, I. I tried to take a photo of it this morning because the the other ones are turning white and I've got one that's just gone fully black. 
<laughs> so this is the one point three percent here. That's it. Um, so yeah, it was it was just as much about sort of learning about yourself and the change of and you know the music being a bit of a different vibe and and just embracing this other side of you. Yeah, that's so special. So we you were writing some of these songs in Mongolia as well. I wrote all of them yeah. except for last couple. Well, last one that I wrote on the Trans-Siberian when I was going up to Moscow. Amazing. And can we talk a little bit about Mongolia? Because I think Mm -hmm. it's an important part of your story and an important part of this record, obviously. Um, So you were working there. Were you doing similar work? I mean, it's pretty broad. Um, The Kenyan work was very broad. The work that I was doing in Mongolia was really supporting a, a domestic violence advocacy group. They were really the domestic violence advocacy group in Mongolia that started in 1990, mm. um, group of women, most of them lawyers. Uh, at the time, domestic violence was not recognized as any sort of crime or any kind of legal infringement. Um, they That's started so the crazy. first shelters. Um, they provided all the services and that basically stayed that way for 20 years. And then in the last sort of 10 years, the government and the police have finally decided to sort of come on board and sort of say, because, you know, they're mostly concerned about the preservation of the family unit um, there. And, you know, it's a massive, it's a part of their culture. So, uh, yeah, there was a lot of pushback and, you know, they got stuff over the line and then it was repealed and then it was back again. And anyway, by the time I got there, um, they'd managed to get the government to take over um, most of the, a lot of the services and they were transitioning to more of an advocacy role. Mm. And I was just helping them sort of streamline that and get a bit of money from the governments and, um, you know, just prepare some dissemination materials in English and all that sort of stuff. So, I mean, I wasn't there for ages, like 10 months. That's so great though that you got to do that work and support you know, yeah, I mean, cause. it's pretty it's pretty dire. Um, is there still a rule there where it's, it is seen as a criminal offence, but you get a warning or something and it's only the second time that you can be charged? And where are they going to... I mean, that's the other thing. That's where I ended up. Where are they going to go anyway? Yeah. Like, there's one city. Everyone knows everyone. And even yeah. if they manage to get away, what are they going to do? So, I tried... I, my last sort of thing was to write a program about sort of rehousing and reskilling because mm. that's the real... That's the real kicker. Most of them end up back with the abusive partner, yeah. and then, I mean, that's where it all comes crashing down. Getting away isn't as big of a problem as it is staying away. It's so hard. It's um, and it's a very sad story because really, uh, it's not quite like the same reasons that we have here. You know, you've got this. Uh, you know, the way that it was explained to me was that during the time when the Soviets were helping. Um, they were friendly, the friends with the Mongolian people, very close friends. In the 70s and 80s, they offered free education and so on and so forth. And the herdsmen at the time thought it was a waste of time. So they sent all the women there, their daughters, and mm. said to their sons, no, you're going to stay and continue the herding life, which is now almost non-existent. So you've got this highly educated uh, generation of women that have all the top jobs um, and this highly uneducated group of men with that are unemployed mm. who start drinking at 11am are completely soused by two or three, but then when the wives come home at five, they still expect them to do, to do all the work mm. and get very abusive. And, I mean, towards the children as well, I went to one of the last uh, shelters that we were looking after and there was this young boy, just this one young boy who... Um, you know, this huge scar across his head because his father had thrown him out of a second f- floor window. Um, he was lucky to be alive. So, yeah, it's pretty um, It's pretty grim. That is so grim um, and amazing that you got to help you know, the short time you were there. Yeah, I guess, I, yeah, for what I could yeah. do, yeah. Do you think you'll go back? Mongolia? Probably, maybe mm. not. I don't know. Like... I'm much more of an Africa dude. Yeah. I like them vibes. You know, Africa always... The first thing I think about when someone says I've been to Africa is I was watching this show called Parasites in Me or something. (laughs) And every single person said, on my trip to Africa, I got this... I did have a parasite. You did? I had... um, It was um, an amoeba that... uh, I just, uh, I got, I kind of felt a bit 
icky, and maybe ASIS it's called, is the actual infection. Um, and uh, I think it was from some undercooked meat, but I don't want to say that explicitly. Um, but just one afternoon or one evening, I had some friends of mine who were US Peace Corps people staying over at my house. And I was just like, oh, I just feel a bit like icky. I'm just going to go on and lie down and maybe have an early night. About five minutes later, I jump up, grab a bucket and <gasps> vomit the entirety of my guts Whoa. up. I mean, like, and I'd had a little bit of red wine, not much because yeah. I didn't feel well. So it was kind of blood red as Ew. well. <laughs> and I'm like this. Shaking. And I lived, you know, well outside of Nairobi. It was very lucky that just recently Aga Khan had opened up a clinic locally. And uh, my friend Trevor drove, he'd never driven stick before, drove me to this Bunny place hopping. yeah he yeah. went just like this and i'm like this <laughs> and they've given you know they were just closing up but you know um <laughs> they ma- they managed to fit me in and gave me the test and they're like yeah you've got you know this parasite and so uh, yeah for the next um month i was basically in hospital Whoa. like uh I was in and then I got out and then because of all the antibiotics they were taking and like that knocked me around and it was a bad time. Holy moly. Did it have long-term effects? Uh, I mean, it definitely did on like my, yeah, because I was leaving Kenya at the time as well. So uh, like it really shook me up. It kind of felt like she come to get me. I'm not going to leave, you know, this was it. You know, between I've, that and the malaria, yeah, like I've dodged death <laughs> enough times Christ. here. It's this is it for you now. Uh, so I was really quite terrified because yeah. uh, I was going th- back through America. My dad was living there at the time, and I, I just was a wreck the whole time. Um, and even after I got back, it took me about it took me quite a few months to sort of get back in. I'd, I'd had these kind of weird sort of like neurologic sensations and Whoa. I had a couple of MRIs and stuff. And From the um, parasite, do you think? I think it was just the after, Everything. after effects of yeah. on and on. Holy moly. Um, yeah, it kind of left me a little bit shattered there. That's full on. But you want to go back. Well, on my <laughs> own terms, maybe. <laughs> well, I, I want to ask you my last question, which okay. is the question that I ask everyone. What is your strangest show experience? I feel like I've already heard five of these from you tonight. I'm really excited about this next one. Yeah, so <laughs> this is actually a really sweet story, I think, um, because it um, it was kind of like one of those weird off-kilter dreams that come true. And um, there's a film, a Norwegian film from the year 2000 called Get Ready to Be Boy's Voice, and it's a I mockumentary film. All I remember of it is... We are the Playwomen. Oh, well. Yeah. (laughs) That's it. They've got these (laughs) schlocky songs. Um, So, it was written and the main actor was this guy called Espen Ekbo, who is a comedy, you know, TV radio star in in Norway. And at the time, he was really paying out on boy bands. So, and he was like, I'm just going to show you how easy it is to like be successful. So, they kind of... It was born out of that idea and they made this mockumentary, Get Ready to Be Boys Voiced, which had a weird thing where it was never shown anywhere else except in Australia. And it was actually SBS that subtitled it well before it was subtitled in Norway. Um, And there was... I just remember uh, being at home one night... And there was this show on and, you know, it's it's, it's Scandi and you're kind of like, is this for real? Like, are they fucking taking the piss or what's going on here? Yeah. Like, I don't understand if it's a joke or not because I saw, I did, I missed the, maybe the first 15 minutes and just tuned in and I'm watching this thing and I'm, just, I'm still really uncertain. It was hilarious though. Like they, you know, so the story is that, you know, they're this kind of... Um, uh, you know, boy band that they go and play a, uh, a shopping center, and um, Espen is who plays this character M- M- Pete, um is completely <laughs> talentless, um, and he assaults like a Salvation Army officer and this old lady, and he writes this song about his girlfriend who he thinks is sixteen, which is 
already wrong, but then it turns out she's only 12. And um, he's like, what? Why didn't you tell me? And he, they lose their management, but then they make this comeback through working with a, like they get a, a fish finger sponsorship. And it's so bizarre, but it's completely hilarious. And the songs are really cleverly kind of kitschy and like, let me be your father Christmas tonight, tonight, ring, rung, all this sort of stuff. Anyway, um, so... I get this call on the phone and it's Wally and he's like, are you watching this? And I'm like, yes, how are you watching this? Like, we must have been the only two people in Australia watching this film. You know, both, uh, you know, sons of, of European um, imports. Yeah. And just loving it, you know. Yeah. Back in the days before Eurovision was taken over by, you know, all the, the, the coolsies that it is now. Um, and SBS was this other kind of weird thing. Yeah, where that, you see boobs. Yeah, like yeah, sex yeah. BS. <laughs> um, and so we ended up like bonding. That was one one of the earliest moments, bonding over this ridiculous mockumentary. And it was actually up here in Brisbane. We ended up doing a, um, one of our infamous tri-state residencies at the Troubadour. Mm-hmm. And there was a whole bunch of Norwegian students um, who uh, were studying that would come to our gigs every week because we were doing like, you know, like something like a gold coin donation or whatever. And it would just get packed out. And we became quite good friends with them and bonded with them over this film because it's like, who else on earth would know this? Anyway, they went home and... Um, we they organised a, a, a tour for us in uh, I mean a very small tour in Norway when we first went over to the UK and to Japan we went to Norway as well and played a couple of shows there and had written an email to Espen saying I'd oh, be great if you could come to the show and so on and so forth we never heard anything back and nothing came out of that but then a couple of years later um, we had did another tour of Norway and we went into um, whatever the main commercial station is there hit fm or so uh there's a male host and a female host and they're like so we've heard your favorite film is get ready to be boys (laughs) voice i'm like yes you know we're telling this story of how like i've just told you and uh the female host is like well just look to your left and we didn't we didn't recognize him at first but the male host was actually one of the other three hot tub um, who's played by um, Irvin Thon. Okay, so he actually did all Hot the singing tub. on... on yeah, his, his name's Hot Tub. And <laughs> even though he's not... He gets to be the gay, token gay guy in the band. Even though he's not gay, they're like, we need a gay guy because, you know, that gets that gets the sponsorship and all this sort of stuff. And he's like, oh, he's like a little guy and he's like, just, you know, so he gets the nickname Hot Tub. Um <laughs> But he actually sang on all the songs and all the recordings. Espen himself can't really sing. He just, um, you know, he's the the comedic factor. So, Irvind, we said we were playing in in, uh, in, one of the venues. I can't remember what it was. But um, we're like, you know, we've we've learned a couple of the songs. Do you want to come? And and he's like, yeah, I guess let's do it. This was the only time he'd ever performed the songs. Wow. Um, I think he might have done it since then, but this was back in 2008 or seven or yeah. something like that. He <laughs> oh came up God. on stage and we did two or three of the songs from Boy's Voice and Espen apparently was in the audience. Wow. Uh, I didn't get to meet him. I was too, like, doing my thing. Yeah. Um, but that was, <laughs> you know, that was something really special to have wow. made that connection between, you know, a few years ago just yes. randomly seeing this film meeting these norwegian students would led led to us being in norway doing gigs which led to us meeting the people in the film and that sang it and would then happy to get up on stage with these people that they didn't even know and they were just trusting us that we could play the songs and killed it and like there's video there's footage of it somewhere apparently i haven't seen it for quite a few years but that was, you know, That's there's there's special. been some crazy stories, but that one is. What um, songs? What did you do? Do you remember? We definitely did um, Father Christmas, and then I think <laughs> um, the uh, I think we did the one about the with sixteen year old woman. It's called <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um, yeah, I'm in love with a sixteen year old. 
a 16 old woman or something like that. I can't remember how it goes now. And then she turns out to be 12. And it's, so then she's like, up. I've got to go home. Like, my mum's picking me up. And he's like, he's weirdly putting his arm uh, around it. It's total scanty humor. You have to kind of just go with it, right? I can't remember that bit. But um, I do remember the, them dressing up in the Playmo. That was the glass thing. thing. Yeah. That was the last sequence at yeah. the like Eurovision. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where they that's where they make their big comeback. Right. Um, you didn't do that song. Ah, uh, no, that was a little bit too a bit, uh, synthy. Yeah, yeah. Synth based. It wasn't quite rock <laughs> enough. Um, but it's well worth checking out uh, for people that are uh, you know fans of that. Yeah. It's such a great film. Um, I don't know how you'd get it, but I think they might be. They, you know, surely SBS it's might. on YouTube these days. I, it should look it up. Yeah, yeah. It's I, they, we got given a copy on DVD a, a few years ago, but I don't know who's got it anymore. So probably say, Wally in a cupboard. Can, yeah, it's with the EX forty two. Yeah, under a sheet. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Chris, thank you so much for making the time to to come and chat to me. Of course. And I wish you all the best with this record. I think thank it's you. really special, and I hope lots of people get to hear it. <laughs>